This presentation is from Managing Design 2016, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So I'd like to introduce Alistair. He is uh, working at Atlassian. And as you can see from the title of his talk, the thing he's going to cover today is how do you grow something from a really small team to a really big team in not very much time? Mm, Which I know a lot of you are dealing with (laughs) as well. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Good morning, all. Um, Actually, just before I start, I'm just actually interested from the first talk, how many consultants do we have in the room versus... So consultants, hands up or stand up? All right, interesting. Okay, interesting. All right, awesome. Um, As Donna said, I'm going to talk about how we've grown our design team from from six to over 100 people in four years. Um, And I'll talk about some hard lessons that we've kind of learned along the way. And the consultant thing probably makes a little bit more sense now. Oh, hang on. There we go. So I wanted to start with this truism, what I'll call a truism. So consultants are a service to a client. And before I worked at Atlassian, I was a consultant, and I was a service to the clients that I worked with. And it might sound like an obvious statement, um, and some consultants may embed with their clients, as Ali just talked about, and spend a lot of time with them to get closer. But the reality is the client is always in control. And the consultant is almost a paid service. So the model will look something like that. So you've got the client on the inside of an organization, and then the consultant on the outside. Might sound very simple, very obvious. But what I would notice as a consultant when I went into these companies was that the internal design team was also a service to the product teams that they work with. The design team would report up to engineering or to product management, or even the design team was one lonely visual designer sitting in a corner somewhere. So the relationship, again, would look something like this. So you'd have design on the outside of the product management and engineering team as a service to the client. And a few years ago, this is exactly what the relationship looked like at Atlassian. So when we were just six people, this is exactly what it looked like. But not today. So today it's very different. Now, when I was interviewing for the role, Jürgen Spangl, who I'll talk about in a moment, he drew this on a whiteboard in the middle of an interview for me. He drew me the true triads that he was trying to build at Atlassian to help build the right things for customers. And I was intrigued because I'd heard about these mythical triads that work really well together to create awesome products. And then he went on to kind of swear at me. Um, He said, I don't really care. If the experience is not right, you should stop the release of the product. And it was a really bold quote. But he said that to emphasize the expectations that he had of designers that worked at Atlassian. He wanted designers to stand up and ship great experiences for our customers. Now, you might be agreeing, nodding your heads, thinking, that's awesome, you've got a seat at the table at Atlassian. How do I do that at my company? But to me, it's not really about sitting at any metaphoric table It's not about wielding the same influence as, say, the product team or the engineering team. It's about the value that your company places on design. That's the key. And it's more than sitting at a table. It's about changing your company culture from something where your design team sits in the corner as a service to the rest of the organization to actually embedding designers physically throughout the organization and also making the rest of your organization care and value the discipline of design. And that's really, really hard to do. I won't lie. But it's crucial. If you want to set up the teams that you manage for success, you have to do this in your organization. And what I'll talk about is five hard lessons that we've learned at Atlassian. So on this journey. And we're still on that journey today. We're we're still growing and we're still learning But I'll talk about those lessons and how we've set up our teams for success. And the first lesson, most of them are quotes, but this is a quote from me. It's, you can have the best design team in the world, but if your company doesn't value design, it doesn't mean squat. It really doesn't matter. Now, as a consultant, I had a great design team, five awesome designers, great skill set, awesome people. 
but oftentimes we could never really impact real change in the clients that we worked with, quite often. Clients didn't really truly value the discipline of design. They spoke about being more customer-centric, about really valuing design, but the organizations just weren't really set up for it at all. And so if we look at the history of Atlassian, Atlassian was founded quite proudly, and we still are, by two engineers, Scott and Mike. And back in 2008, we hired our first designer. But from 2008 to 2012, we only went from one to six designers. And that's at a time where the organization was experiencing double, triple-digit headcount growth in engineering and product management. So why? And also at the time, design reported up to engineering. So why didn't it grow? And we need to look at the value that Atlassian placed on design. So Atlassian has these really strong cultures of founder reviews. So small project teams get really nervous, go up to the founders and present their work. And the founders give them critical feedback. And it's an awesome process. It's quite nerve-wracking for people, but it's an awesome process. And it keeps the founders close to the products. But at the time, back in 2008, this is the type of feedback that design would get. Why is the button over there? Or why is the button this color? So design was spoken about truly at the wrong level. People were focusing on the wrong things. They were looking at the UI. And it was really difficult for design teams to have meaningful conversations in there. And designers, to be honest, were being really frustrated. And then in 2011, Atlassian hired this man, Jürgen Spangl, who's pictured quite happily here. He's not always looking this happy. And this presentation would be a miss if I didn't acknowledge the impact that this one man has had on the organization. So he's given design a really strong voice at Atlassian. But he's had, he's had to work extremely hard for that. It's not come easy. And I'll use a quote from one of my favorite TV series, Mad Men, hopefully there's some fans, uh, from Don Draper. So if you don't like what is being said, then change the conversation. And that's exactly what Jürgen had to do. He had to elevate the practice of design to the right level within the company. And he had to fight for the right things for our customers. So how did he do that? So I'll look at one project out of a couple that he did. So when you're a fast-moving company, you're shipping products to your customers really fast, and that's awesome. And it's great for your customers. But sometimes design and development gets duplicated. And what's building on the screen is some of the 44 different drop-down menu styles that existed in Atlassian products in 2011. 44 different styles just to do a drop-down. Awesome, right? So that's not good from a development point of view because we're duplicating, not good from a design point of view, and it's not good for our customers. But it's not just drop-downs. This is Jira. Many of you probably use it, maybe hate it. Um, but this is Jira back in 2011. And if I draw your attention to the header, you'll see the logo and you'll see this tabbed approach. And then I'll bring in Confluence. So this is our second biggest product. Again, have a look at the header. It's got a breadcrumb. And if I then slide them in, you can see they look totally different. Almost two different companies could have designed these products. And these are our two flagship products. So the first thing that Jürgen did was he shipped the first version of the Atlassian design guidelines. This standardized core elements across our products. Now, you all might be thinking, that's a no-brainer, right? 44 different styles of a drop-down menu? That's a total no-brainer. But it wasn't. Back in 2011, Atlassian didn't really value design. To ship this into our products, we pro probably put 70% of our engineering effort into this. And nobody was really happy with that. It was very unpopular. Because there wasn't a single customer who'd asked for us to update our drop-down styles. Nobody. But there were customers asking for different features and functionality to be shipped in the product. So this was an extremely unpopular decision to push this forward. But Jürgen essentially bet his job on it, really. He said he, he strongly believed in this, and he wanted to push this through. And it shipped, and we got some really nice quotes from customers, like Robert Vinning, who noticed the difference, and who could see the improvements slowly building over time in the product experience. Product advocates and customer support told us that Customers were overwhelmingly positive with feedback about the new products. And, our, and key product metrics also improved. 
But it wasn't just customers. It allowed us to have a much faster process because, as most designers, we sketch on walls and paper and post-it notes. Um, and it was good for our engineers, though, because it meant that we had existing patterns that we could just draw, and then the engineers had these patterns in code because they were also in a code library. They weren't just design patterns. They were a front-end code library. So it was really, really quick for us to, to start building and shipping products. Now, if we come back to the founder reviews, instead of asking about button placement and color, they started asking, well, how do we scale design faster? They truly believed. So from 2008 to 2012, where we went from one to six designers, from 2012 to 2016, we've gone to over 100 in the design team. So we had a true top-down mandate to do this. And importantly, the company now valued design. So this is what the reporting structure used to look like with design reporting into the engineering group. And that changed the design reporting directly into the CEOs. And I don't, I want to emphasize here, this isn't about sitting at a metaphorical table. This is about the value that the company now placed on design. That's the key. And Julie Zhu, who I'm sure many of you probably follow, and the Facebook design director, she has this great quote, if you don't want design to be treated as a service, you need to have an opinion about what problems are solving and why. And that's key. It's not about tables, sitting at those tables. It's about the problems you're solving and the value you can bring. So the takeaway from this first lesson is design is not some magical switch that gets turned on inside a company. It's a conscious effort on behalf of your CEOs and the executive team. And I've kind of highlighted that's you as design leaders of teams. It is your responsibility to make design matter in your company. If design isn't truly valued in your org, it doesn't really matter what you do with your design teams. You're not setting them up for success. I thought I could take a break there. That quote's good. Um, so this is the second lesson is a quote from the Pixar founders, Dr. Michael B. Johnson. Pain is temporary. Suck is forever. Um, and my colleague, Nat Jones, who's at the back, gave me this quote. It's about... This, this quote talks about when you're getting design feedback, the pain and the awkwardness, if people are telling you it's not very good for many, many reasons, that is temporary, and it is better to have that temporary pain than shipping something that your customers will use all the time. Like, that, that's much worse. So what lesson do we have at Atlassian? So back in probably about 2012, we shipped this thing called the App Switcher. So the hamburger menu, you can switch between multiple products if you've signed up to multiple products. And we shipped it really quickly. And on face value, it seemed like this awesome top idea. But what, what actually happened is we didn't really think this through. As you can see in the example on the screen, what happens if you have dozens of Jira instances or dozens of products with us? It doesn't really scale very well. And it's actually a really, really difficult decision for us to reverse. And it's still live in the products today. And it's actually causes designers and product people pain in their lives today because it is a very hard decision to, to take out. So on a micro level, we needed to find a way to get better design decisions with our designers and our product teams. So we created this process called design sparring. And it sounds scary, but it's not that scary. This is usually when Jürgen's getting angry when he's in a sparring session. Um, but design sparring at a micro level was about getting teams together and critiquing their work on a regular basis. And it became part of the rituals of all of our teams. And the important thing for us around design sparring was it is design-led. We facilitate the design, the process of, uh, of sparring our work. But it's structured. So... We record our decisions. We have these design decision documents where we record decisions along the way to make sure that we're not reinventing the wheel or re rehashing things. It's inclusive, though. So it's not just designers. Product managers and engineers come to this process because shipping great design is not just the realm of designers. It is everybody's responsibility. And it's regular. So sparring happens either weekly or fortnightly with every single team who is doing design work. And if you want to hear more about this, Nat Jones has got a great talk and uh, a, an article on our Medium account about all about design sparring. 
but we needed something on a more macro level, team level. We needed to codify design, the design process across our organization. What I mean by this is, to many non-designers, the design process is this black box, this mythical process where designers go into a room for a day, a week, a month, however long, and they come out with the answers, apparently. So we wanted to debunk that myth and help make the whole organization make better design decisions. So how did we do that? The first thing we did was we visualized our design process and then shared this with the whole company. So it's three phases, envision, make, and improve, and it focuses on continuous improvement. The key reason we did this was so that we showed non-designers where they were going before we took them there. We made them feel comfortable with the process. And the other key thing is this is a truly collaborative process. There's no design-only phase in here. So let's zoom in really quickly. The process that we have is part prescribed. So there's certain things that every team has to do. But we do not take away the full creativity from that design process. So if you squint, those at the back a little bit, you can see something that says on the top left, do the experience canvas. Every team running a project at Atlassian has to run the experience canvas because it sets that, the foundations for the project, who we're designing for, what we're designing for, any assumptions we have, the hypothesis, any, any restrictions that we have in the design process. But then again, if you squint, something like generate ideas, teams can run many different sessions to generate ideas. And what this did was it gave us enough guidance to scale it across a large organization, to really scale. Now, each step here, like do the experience canvas or generate ideas, we codified into what we call plays internally. And a play is just a step-by-step -step guide on how to run the experience canvas or a how-might-we session or a what-if session. And the key is that anybody can run those, not just designers. And so we then codified all of those plays, and there's about 70, I think, at last count, into what's known as the internal playbook. So that playbook, anybody can go to, anybody can read and run one of those plays. And we then ran education sessions. So we ran boot camps, company-wide, that anybody could come to on how to run these sessions so that they felt included in the design process. But I should emphasize that process is continually evolving as we learn and grow and scale. It's not just here's our process and we ignore it for the rest, next three years. It's continually evolving as we scale. But it's given us a great baseline. So the second takeaway, if you haven't already, help set your team up for success. Codify the design process. Debunk that black box myth of design. So codify it, share it, and then iterate and improve on it continuously. My third lesson is a quote from John Cleese, who hopefully most of you know. So I've several times made a poor choice by avoiding a necessary confrontation. And most of us avoid confrontation, right? Why would you want to get like, confronting? I'm here to say don't. There's this really nice framework by, uh, that Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook talks about called Radical Candor. And Radical Candor is all about creating these bullshit-free zones with your team where people love to work and give feedback. And it might sound really, really simple, but as a boss, as a manager, you need to tell your team when they're screwing up. That is your responsibility. However, oftentimes we don't. And I'll tell a short story. I just joined Atlassian four weeks in, and I was asked to present at a company all hands. 800 people. Four weeks in. About the project that I was running that nobody really wanted to know about. But I was quite nervous. I ran the, pres I ran the presentation, though. It went quite well. But then immediately afterwards, a guy called Dom Price, who's our head of program management, came up to me. And... He's this big, burly, northern English chap, quite imposing. 
And he said, congratulations, Alistair, well done, great presentation. And I said, thank you. And he said, I'm not sure if you noticed, though, but you were stood in the same spot and you were just gently rocking back and forth. <laughs> and I was embarrassed, felt really awkward. And I said, no. And I didn't really know what to say. But it was a candid, honest piece of feedback. He cared. He gave a shit. He wanted me to improve and get better as a speaker. And so I appreciated that. And so I'm not going to talk through the whole of Cheryl's framework, but if you imagine an axis, vertically is caring personally, horizontally is challenging directly, you want your feedback to fall in the top right. So that's where radical candor lies. And so the, the thing I love about this is that the vertical axis is caring personally. You are showing your teams that you care. It's not about telling them they're rubbish or they've screwed up or whatever. You are telling them that you care about them and you want them to grow and get better as designers. And so Ali touched on the skills matrix. And we have a skills matrix internally, and that's how we practice this candidness. So our skills matrix, we're actually in the process of evolving it, but at the moment we have three themes, craft, getting shit done, and leadership. Within each theme... There's about 20 competencies. I've got about three just listed here. And then we ask designers to self-assess on every single competency. One being, I'm a total novice. Five being, I'm a practice leader, Jedi, totally awesome at this. But we then get the manager to assess them without seeing what the employees put. And then they come together and they discuss the scores. And so... That's a really open and honest way of giving candid feedback because one of my team may have self-assessed themselves as a five in interaction and UI design. They think they're practice leader in that skill, and I may have given them a three. That's quite an awkward conversation to have, but it's better to have that conversation than let it fester because you can then talk about how you can help them grow, about being aware of what being a practice leader actually means within your organization. It's a really nice way that we practice candidness in internally. So the third takeaway, show your team that you care. So practice this radical candor. Be open and honest. Be direct with them. It will help you build trust, and it will help you grow your teams faster if you can build that rapport with them. So the next lesson is a quote from John Lennon. Rituals are important. Nowadays, it's hip not to be married. I'm not interested in being hip. And it's a really nice, this is going to be quite a practical section about how we foster strong rituals of Atlassian with our team to build a culture of design teams and a chemistry within teams, which is really hard to do. So the first thing that we do, if you want to become a master of anything, you want to get amazing at something, there's this learning curve, right? So there's going to be this curve that you go on. Now, knowing where you are on that curve is super useful for you because you can then work out, okay, I've got to get here. I'm kind of here. This is what I need to do. And Aikido gives us this really nice framework of taking you from a novice to a master called Shuhari. Now, if you break Shuhari down, Shu means to learn, Ha means to practice what you've just learned, and Ri means to master or to go beyond, become a practice leader. So how do we do this at Atlassian? How do we use this framework? Apologies for the graininess. Oh, that's too bad. But we have these things called 90-day plans. Now, if you think about if you've ever started in a new job, which I'm sure you have, you normally turn up, you'll get given your laptop, you get told where the shared folder is and how to get paid, fill in this form, and then here you go, do some work. <laughs> That's pretty much what most onboarding experiences are like. But at Atlassian, we have these things called 90-day plans, and I'll scroll through one because it's quite long. These 90-day plans are super in-depth, as you can see. I might just let it scroll and not talk. It's really, really long. And as a manager, we spend a lot of time creating these 90-day plans for our team. Because we want to set them up for success. And we know that if we can get this ritual right of their first few weeks in Atlassian or first few months, they will be more likely to succeed. 
So how does this relate to Shu Hari? So zero to 30 days, you're in the Shu phase. You're learning. You're learning about the company. 30 to 60 days, we generally start getting people to do some work to put into practice what they've learned. And then 60 to 90 days, they're becoming a master in a particular thing. Not everything, but in a particular thing. And there's also things in there about company and team history. Why are things like they are? People that they should meet and greet with because building relationships at Atlassian in many companies is super important. And we encourage people to make those relationships. Go for coffee. Links to internal research. Again, company the size of Atlassian, most things have been done at some point. There's great ways, rather than getting people just to reinvent the wheel, show them where things are. And then clear deliverables at 30, 60, and 90 days so they feel a sense of accomplishment across that journey. The next ritual we have is something we affectionately known as de design detention. <laughs> There's an awesome little sketch behind it from one of the, the team. If you work in any company now, any company, it doesn't matter how big or small, Getting shit done is hard. Productivity is hard. Meetings, email, instant message, WhatsApp, whatever. It's very, very distracting. And as a designer, if you've got a really complicated problem, that's not good to be spending 20 minutes, I'll answer this hip chat message, 20 minutes, I'll send this email, or 30 minutes, I'll go into Slack. Like, complex problems involve you need to actually focus. And so design detention was our response to this because we had a problem with this. Design detention is one day per week where a design team, so my team, would come together in a room or a space and they will turn off email, will reject all meetings, turn off hip chat, and they will just work. Some teams, somebody will sit there with their headphones on and just work on a problem themselves. Somebody might pair with somebody. It's a very unstructured day, but the point is it's one day per week where they're focusing on design work, purely. What the added benefit of this, other than just allowing them to get through much more work, is that it's built these really great bonds with the team because they come together and they solve problems, which is what you want to do as a designer. The next ritual that we have is something called Design Week. So Design Week is an entire day, or sorry, an entire week, where the whole design team comes together to learn and work together. Now, the picture in the background here is design week from 2013. Seven people. This is design week in 2014. This is design week in 2015. And this is design week from a couple of months ago. So I don't really show this. This does illustrate the growth quite nicely. But I don't show this to say, look how awesome we are, we've grown. The reason I share Design Week is that it started as a simple thing, but now it's a cultural tradition within the design organization. And it's something that we hold on to. Because we're the only department, we're the only functional department in Atlassian that does this. But people are quite envious of us. But the whole team really look forward to this every year. So people in Austin, Texas, San Francisco, Gdansk in Poland, all coming to Sydney to meet people that they've only met via instant message or via the intranet. So building those face-to-face -face bonds. So it's super important for us now. So the takeaway here is, whatever they are, you need to put rituals in place to foster a real culture of trust and a sense of team. So you don't have to take the rituals that I've given you, but you must put strong rituals in place with your team. Okay, so some of you know Maddie Shrek, I know, but um, Maddie's a colleague of mine, and he tweeted this a couple of weeks ago, and I laughed out loud, I won't lie. Um, UXs, your problem is not solved just because you arrived at some conceptual diagram. You might have to ask an interface designer for help. Now, I really like this quote because it was a really nice way of sharing the hiring journey that we've been on in Atlassian. And I'm not going to talk about should you hire generalists, unicorns, visual designers, etc. At different stages in your growth, you'll need different types of people. 
But what we've learned through our journey is that you have to really value the craft of design. And I mean the craft. So the makers, the tinkerers, the doers, the people who will create awesome experiences for you. So you have to really value that. So how do we do that? This is a typical career path for a designer. You come in as a grad, you make your way to mid-level, you become a senior, and then pretty much you go into managing teams, and then you become a head of and get involved in strategy. Nobody, not that I've seen really, has stopped and asked why all designers suddenly want to So a couple of years ago, we did this at Atlassian. We created a pure separate track for craft leadership. And the keen-eyed amongst you will notice that if you're a senior designer and you go into management as a design team lead, it is a lateral move. You are not stepping up a corporate ladder by just because you're starting to manage a few people. You're simply moving from concentrating on product problems and opportunities to solving team-level problems and opportunities. And that's important. We wanted to show the value that we gave to craft. And what I love about this is what it's encouraged internally. People should do the type of work that is most fulfilling to them and is most valuable to the company. It's super important. An amazing individual contributor should be just as valued as a really great manager of people. And again, you may notice the keen-eyed that a lead designer or a principal designer in many cases, outranks a design manager. We're almost ahead of design. So we really value that craft of design, and we're really trying to foster that craft and pushing those people forward. But we haven't forgotten management. We see that as a craft as well. And we look to hire really strong senior managers. Why? If you're in any modern organization that is growing or even organizations that aren't, there is a high rate of change, a high rate of ambiguity, a high rate of uncertainty. And that uncertainty or ambiguity can stop designers designing stuff because they haven't got a clear direction. And that's what you need from strong managers is giving your teams a strong direction of where they're going. So as a manager, you're a great umbrella for your team, sheltering them when they need it and allowing people to get on with the work that they do. So having awesome managers is super important. So that last takeaway is you need to really value that craft of design and the craft of management. Make sure you have clear career paths internally for people who don't want to become managers because otherwise you will lose them to other places that do value craft. So I wanted to pull those kind of five lessons together so design is a discipline, we're, we're growing up. We're becoming an integral part of many, many businesses now. Design and design thinking and methodologies, they're not a fad. It is not going to go away. It's here to stay. But we as design leaders must set our teams up for success. And again, I've got a quote, something that happened a few years ago at Atlassian, but at some point... Your team or your PMs, your product managers or CEO will ask you what design really owns. And you need to have a better answer than the user experience. You can't say the user experience. The performance, how fast or slow your web application or your mobile application is, has a direct impact on the user experience. As a designer, I don't own performance. So you've got to have a great answer for this. I think Ali touched on this as well. Like, I hear a lot of terms thrown around now. Designers should be able to code. Designers should own the roadmap. What's the difference between a PM and a designer now? Designers should have a seat at this amazing table that I hear a lot about. And I actually call bullshit on a lot of these terms. It is awesome if you have a designer who can code. That's great. It is awesome if you've got a designer with a great product head on them. Again, awesome. But the key to being a great designer is working in a team to solve problems. That is a great, what a great designer does. And the key to a great team 
is having really clear responsibility and accountability for what people are doing within that team. And so I come back to that mythical true triad that I talked about at the start, this thing that's almost a myth. How have we helped foster this at Atlassian? How have we got these triads working? The key thing we've done is we've given clear responsibility and accountability to each discipline. So product management have a clear mandate to build, make sure we are building the right thing. That is what product management does. Engineering, make sure that we build that in the right way. And as a design team, we have to make sure that it is usable and it is delightful for our customers. Every discipline has a clear understanding of what they're responsible and accountable for to each other. And we can measure each discipline. So we have metrics that we use around monthly active users, net promoter score, making sure all those things in each discipline that we break them down are going in the right direction. But then magically, the metrics that we use for each discipline also map up to the triad groups. So the triad as a whole is responsible for overall customer satisfaction that we measure by the same metrics, monthly active users and net promoter score. And of course, there are other metrics in there because those two metrics are quite blunt, but they're the key metrics. What this has done is that the triad are no longer arguing about seats at tables or who owns the roadmap. They're all pulling in the same direction to make better customer experiences for the people that use our products. And so I'll just end by pulling all those things together, and then I think we've got time for some questions. So number one, make design matter. Number two, codify your design process. Number three, be candid with your teams. Four, rituals make your team. And five, value the craft of design. And then bringing all of that together, make sure that your team knows what they are responsible for and accountable for. Thank you. Thanks. So we've got like 15 minutes for questions, which is very excellent. Um, questions for Alistair? Hi, we hear a lot about delighting the customer. Mm, sure. <laughs> Explain to me what that means to Atlassian and how you can continue to do that. Yeah, sure. Um, delight's very difficult to measure. Um, some of the other metrics that we have around softer metrics, so maybe the Google Heart Framework um, or what, what words the customer associate with a service or product or service that they're using or a specific micro-interaction. But to be honest, most of those things we measure on a very um, micro level at a project level because some, if somebody is dragging something across a board, which they probably do in Jira all the time, having a, like a firework animation when they put, drop, the, drop the thing is probably not awesome for them to do, right? Because that's a habitual thing that they're doing constantly. So delight means different things for different teams. Um, and it's a very, it is a hard thing to kind of try and measure. And it's something, as I said at the start, we're on this journey. We haven't solved everything. Um, but we're pulling in the same direction, and that's, that's probably the key. That's all right. Hey, Al, great talk, mate. Really love it. Um, I would love to have known if Jürgen was standing on stage, what are the three challenges do you think he's had? Because you talk about things yeah. such as, you know, he put his job on the line. He had managed to convince 70% of the effort to be spent on that style guide. Yep. And it seems to have magically transformed the organization. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's been a lot of hurdles and pain points. If he was on stage now, what do you think his three challenges and battles are right now? Or right, have continued to be? Right now or four years ago? So has he been there four years, has he? Five, yeah. So just five. Just okay, over the last five years, what has been his top three battles? Yeah, sure. I can probably give you what they are today as well if you, if you want, but probably four or five years ago was what I talked about, like making design matter, like really appreciating what design meant and what the value that we could bring to the organization. Um, and almost designing the company, I would say. That was a big thing. Um, when you come into an organization that is built on engineering foundations, 
Um, it is hard to make the organization think about experience because everyone's interested in cool Java stuff um, rather than the experience for customers. Um, so probably number one, three years or four years ago, would have been making design matter. Um, hiring the right people, which is still today. Um, again, we struggle to hire great people. It's, the stat, I think, is 40% of people in Atlassian Sydney have relocated from overseas to come and work for us. And last year, I went to London, Stockholm, Amsterdam, and Berlin to hire people from there to move to Australia because we couldn't find the depth of design talent, so hiring. Um, and the third is that um, once you've made it matter, we've got the right people, is the codifying the process, like, that's been really hard. That has been super hard, and we're still working on that today. We've just hired a design educator because previously we, we relied on grassroots so people like product designers just running those workshops and education sessions, that only scales for so long. And when you're in four locations now, like it, it's hard. And whilst all of the playbook is publicly accessible, getting the team in Austin to necessarily use that and value that is, is certainly hard. So codifying the design process, I'd say, was the third one four years ago. Right now, it's about we've gone through this huge growth period how do you stabilize and get all those processes in place? Um, because we won't, we won't double, we, we're not going to go through the same growth in the next four years. There's no way. So the challenge now is how do we stabilize? How do we get the processes standardized across the organization? Um, and also, as most, I think um, Ali touched on it, like our design teams have changed. So we don't just have designers. So we have writers. So we call it information experience within design. They sit directly within design. We have research now directly within design. And we have front-end engineering more and more as we scale up the web apps to be like more back-end APIs and the front-end totally separate. Like where does front-end sit in there? Is it totally in design or is that in the engineering team? So I'd say that's the challenge today. Uh, thanks, Alistair. Thanks for sharing. It was a great presentation. My question sort of follows on from that codifying part. I'd like to know whether you'd be able to elaborate on the process that was involved, the teams, you know, was there cross-company teams, was there international work, and perhaps the time frame for it? Yep. Thank you. Um, so the project was internally affectionately known as Disneyland. <laughs> um, that happened about four years ago, around about the same time as the ADG, um, as the design guidelines were implemented. It was, it was a cross-functional team, so you, you even had the CEOs in there at the time. You had the VP of product, you had the head of engineering at the time, or the VP of engineering as he was at the time, um, as well as designers and principals, et cetera, like senior designers. The time frame for the whole, like getting the base level in place for a lot of what we've built took them three or four months. Like it took them a long time um, and as you all, all know, like wrangling, getting people on the same page, the shared understanding, how much do we codify versus what, what creativity are we taking away? So that, yeah, that process took three or four months. But the interesting thing was that that was, say, four or five years ago. What dropped out of that were common metrics that we now use, like monthly active users, net promoter score. Those things came out, um, which is, again, super interesting around... We've always spoken to a lot of customers, but we've always spoken to admins who set up instances. Now, Net Promoter Score we now get from end users um, because we want to speak to the hundreds of millions of people who are using our products, not just the people who are setting them up. Um, so all of those things that we have today have dropped out of that. So probably a three or four month process, and then it's probably taken three or four years for everything to really see the light of day. So it's a, lot, it's a long process, and it's continuing today. Like, as I said... We're on a journey. We haven't solved everything. We've, we've got some good stuff in place, but, yeah. Alistair, I have a question. That design recruitment roadshow that you did yeah. looked like an incredible <laughs> yeah. thing. I, yeah. From what I was able to see externally, it looked like a truly remarkable thing. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it started as a, a pipe dream, I think, um, because we, we, honestly, we struggled to hire in Sydney. Um, and somebody said, why don't we go to Europe? And they'd done an engineering tour, which was interesting. They'd had an engineering tour. Um, and so 
We literally pulled it off, though, in about eight weeks. So from start to going, uh, because, mainly because nobody would actually make the final call on, are we doing this, are we not? Um, so within, I think we booked it in, say, March, and we went in May. We literally did a bunch of marketing on local websites, picked the, picked the places we were going based on LinkedIn data. So we have a LinkedIn account, a pro account or something that the talent team use. Picked it on data of where designers were and did some marketing, engaged a local London-based agency to do the screening process. Um, so I can, I'm happy to show the numbers. So we had about 550 applicants which we whittled down to 250 screeners, which got to 25 interviews to six hires. So that was the, that was the process. Yeah, big funnel. Um, but we literally, as I said, it was start to go in eight weeks. We picked people internally who were European, just because we, we knew that we know that moving countries is like a massive deal, right? Like, especially if you've got families. So we wanted people who are here who are European to talk to that process. Um, and yeah, we literally flew in. London for two days, uh, interviewing back to back. As I should say, the interview process we have, we codified that as well to make it really streamlined. Streamlined. So we had like six interviews a day or something. Two in London, two days in London, travel day, two days in Amsterdam, free weekend, travel to Berlin, tra travel day, two days in Stockholm. If you want the key lessons, I'm happy to share the key lessons. If anyone's interested in doing it, don't do four cities. It's not <laughs> worth it. It is literally not worth it, so I, we, we probably will do it again, but I would go to one city and then pay to fly people in who are from other places. It is cheaper to do that than transport all your things, because we had like a, a combi van um, that we took photos of in the locations, but getting that to different locations was costly. Um, we don't, you know, we, it might sound like this is an expensive process. We didn't spend a lot, a lot of money on it, not really. Um, Location, fly in great candidates to meet you, it'll be cheaper, <laughs> guaranteed. And less tiring. And less tiring, yeah, like it was, it was a great experience, but I won't lie, the two weeks were pretty intense because you're basically back to back from eight till six in interviews, back to back, pretty much. So it was, sorry. It was more. Hi. Elsa, hi, that was a really great talk. Thank you very much. You. I really love what you're saying about valuing design craft and management craft. And can you explain a bit more about the dual pathways you have? How do you convince management and how does it work? And how is your staff going in that? Sure. Um, that's something that we are really at the moment trying to push internally. Um, we've just had some, because we're not just doing this in design and engineering, we're doing the same. And we've just had some high profile engineers who've moved from development manager back to principal engineer. Uh, because they've realized that they want to actually be in the code. They don't want to be managing people. How we, was the question how we convince management? Or, uh, to be honest, we don't need to convince our management. The, the, with Mike and Scott being the CEOs, they were doers, tinkerers before they were CEOs, right? Like, they know what it takes to do great design or great engineering work. So they're very happy with that. The, the interesting balance that we're trying to strike now is, what does a principal designer own versus a head of design? So there are some clear stuff, like manage, obviously, HR responsibilities, but who does strategy? When do you pull those people in? Um, that, that's something that we're going through right now. Um, what, what level do people come in in different parts of the process? But in terms of buy-in, we haven't honestly had to... That, that isn't a problem, really, for us. It's, uh, and, and to be honest, the designers and engineers in the team want it. Like... We've hired people, literally, who their re reason for coming, they were like, I was in my job, the only way I could progress was to become a manager. And I don't want to be a manager. And we're like, awesome, come to work for us. Like, we totally value, you've got this whole career path. And, and they love that. They, they really like that. The, the key, yeah, the, the challenge really for us is now balancing what does a head of design do versus a, versus a principal, like... Yeah, I've got a question about the uh, a health checkup you mentioned about a project yep. and then deciding which plays to use. I'm interested to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, there's, <laughs> it's interesting. Like every, pretty much every section, there's probably a whole talk on those things. Um, <laughs> and I think we'll that... Get you back. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, the health monitor... Is it the health monitor? There's, so the health monitor, if you actually go to blogs.lassim.com, there, there is a health monitor write-up on there from Summit from last year 
summits our internal conference. The health monitor is something that we, because the triads, as I said, being totally open and honest, high-performing triads just get it. They just work. They just know what they're doing. Some lower-functioning triads have problems. And so in response to that, we created this thing called the health monitor. The health monitor is simply eight questions, and it maps really closely to the experience canvas that I talked about. And it basically asks the project team to come together, the triad, do you have a full-time owner? Okay, and then people vote, basically. Yes, not sure, no. Do you have a balanced team? Do you have a clear problem statement? Do you understand what success looks like for your project? But the team come together to do that as a group. And then depending on what they've got, what their traffic lights look like, red, amber, green, we can decide on the health of the project. And then the two lowest scoring areas we pick to fix, like let's say they don't have a shared understanding of the goals of the project, we'll spend time fixing that in the next fortnight, and then we'll come back together, run the health monitor again, and then focus on different areas. So the health monitor, it's probably been one of the most effective tools that we've scaled internally. Um, and it's, not it's kind of a design tool. It's not really, though. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like A lot of the problems that we see are just communication shared understanding problems, really. But the health monitor is a really nice way to, to kind of break that down into clear actions. Um, I'll try and find the link and post it somewhere to the blog post. There's a, and again, there's a whole talk. There was a whole talk by Ben Crothers, who some of you probably know, and Don Price last year at Summit. I think the video is online. I can try and find that and share it with you, Don. After. Thanks for sharing. That was really insightful. I was curious, when you were growing your team, um, was there a ratio that you were aiming for in terms of mix of UX to PMs to engineering? Yeah, so, so back in 2012, <laughs> the ratio was, I think, like 30 to 1. 30 to 1 design, one designer to 30 engineers. The ratios today are around, de depends on the team, but they're around eight engineers to one product manager to one designer. That's roughly the ratio that we have. But not every team needs that, for example. like Some teams are working on much bigger, more complicated things that take more time to ship, so they can have a higher ratio. Other things may actually have a lower ratio because they're very high touch, you know, very consumer-facing. So that's, that's roughly the guide that we look to, though, eight to one to one. Um, and then if you want me to include riders in there as well, we go for about half a rider. Great, thank you very much. I think questions could keep going, yeah, so... I'm happy to keep <laughs> Go nagging at, at, at morning tea and lunch and afternoon tea. Yes, you'll be here all day. Um, and thanks, that was really good. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Managing Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.